us a CD. Let me know when we're on. Okay. Thank you, everyone. It's good to see you this morning. Thanks again for being here. Thanks for being faithful to the study of the Word on Sunday morning. Let's be opening our Bibles to 1 John chapter 1. This morning we're going to take a larger section of Scripture than we typically would. And, and I'm doing this on purpose. I want you to understand <clears throat> because what we're doing here is an overview of John rather than the minutia of spending each week in each little detail of what he talks about. Uh, there's benefit on both sides, and I just felt to do it this way. So 1 John 1, 7 to chapter 2, verse 17, and I think you'll see that in your outline. We begin, I'm sorry, 1, 5 to 2, 17 is where we're going today. <clears throat> Father, thank you so much for this gift that you give us. Father, you've not only saved us, but Father, you are our teacher by the Spirit. Thank you, Father, for always teaching, always leading, always correcting, always encouraging, always building up <clears throat> that which needs to be built up and tearing down that which needs to be torn down. Father, thank you for bringing us into this marvelous building project as we are living stones in this living house of God. Father, this morning as we go through your word, we just pray for the anointing power of the Holy Spirit in speaking and delivering a word and pray for the anointing power of the Holy Spirit to receive and understand and apply the word. Father, we want to be those who when we leave today, <clears throat> have encountered you specifically and personally, experientially, mentally, so that we can continue to be built up and matured in the faith for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> As we begin this morning, I want to emphasize something. You're going to see that as we go through this letter of 1 John, I believe the Lord has given me the emphasis, and there's several things you can emphasize in this letter, but I believe John is emphasizing one major issue here, and he's dealing with it in a number of ways. And that major issue is fellowship. Now let's remember this, because I think sometimes what happens in our life in Christ, we get too narrow in our understanding what God is doing and what he has done and what he will do. Everything that God has done, may I repeat that? Everything that God has done, does, will do. Whether we talk about creation, whether we talk about the creation of man, whether we talk about the fall and coming to the incarnation, whether we talk about Jesus' death on the cross, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension, his glorification, whether we're talking about the giving of the Holy Spirit, whether we're talking about the gathering of the church, whether we're talking about the future for the church, everything that God has done has one 
grand objective. Just one. And that objective is fellowship with God. Fellowship with God. And what's the reason for this? Because you see, the fellowship with God is the activity of something that he is desiring to say <clears throat> about himself through the fellowship. And what is he saying in this fellowshipping of the divine with the human? What he is saying is, I have decided to set the display, the activity, and the experience, and the expression of my glory in this fellowship. That's what God does, and that's what he has done, and that's what he will bring to a grand summation or conclusion of fruition in Revelation. We saw that in Revelation 21 and 22, new heaven and a new earth. All that God is and all that he desires us to know about him and to experience of him, which is his glory, his personhood, all of that is to be expressed and seen and developed and is the reason for fellowship. And so as we go through 1 John, you're going to begin to understand why John is <clears throat> so determined to deal with the issues that both promote and hinder that fellowship because it's the basic issue that we have with God. And so let's see what he's saying now. What does John focus on? Why does John focus on the fellowship? Why, why is this John's focus here? Because you see, you remember in Genesis 128, I'm sorry, 126, <clears throat> you can tell I'm not feeling well when I misquote that verse. <clears throat> you can see that in Genesis 126, what does God say? What is his great purpose statement in Genesis 126? Let us make man in our image and after our likeness. There it is. Everything's summed up in that. And so as an image bearer of God, we are to be imaging the very fellowship that exists within God himself. Why is fellowship so significant and central to God? Because it's who he is and how he functions within himself. And you'll see <clears throat> as we go through this series that my primary burden in this series is not to give us a lot of do's and don'ts. There will be some. But to underpin what promotes and hinders fellowship with a motive that often we don't see. And so we'll see this morning why love God? Why love one another? Why not love the world? What's wrong with all those things? What's right with the other things? Because you see, all of this has to do with our being those who image clearly and correctly and consistently that fellowship which God enjoys in himself among the three persons of the Trinity. And I want you to constantly and continually as you read your Bible, especially as you look at the imperatives, you know what the imperatives are, the commands, don't do this, do this, go here, don't do that, go there, do that. As you look at the imperatives, 
keep in mind what is behind the imperative. What is God after? God is after one thing, that we would be the expression of who he is and how he is within himself. That's where the glory of God is. And that expression is manifested within the, fellow, the activity of the fellowship which is in God. So this is why John emphasizes fellowship. And this is why fellowship should be and needs to be and must be emphasized within the church. God is a fellowshipping community. Remember the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He is a fellowshipping community in which each divine person, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, where each divine person exists in relation to the other. Now, what does that say something about the church? None of us exist apart from the other as far as God's purpose is concerned. That each exists in relation to the other. Each functions in relation to the other in a complete, perfect, and an eternal unity. That's what this fellowshipping of God is all about in God. And that's what God is after in a living community that images that fellowship so that the fellowship that exists there may also exist here so that we as a community of the church on earth may be imaging the community in heaven, the heavenly community. That's what this is all about. You see, God does not just do fellowship. God in his essence is fellowship. <clears throat> That's who he is. Apart from fellowship, God is not God. God is fellowship. And so any understanding and definition and function of fellowship needs to be connected into the very personhood of God himself. Otherwise, we are missing the understanding, the vitality, and the power, and the motivation of what fellowship is. And so what I'm hoping that during this series, that the Holy Spirit is taking our understanding and the activities that we are so accustomed to as believers and deepening us into more getting us into the root of the matter rather than so much on the top soil. Let's get under the ground and begin to see what's really happening in the soil and in the roots of God himself, producing the fruit on the tree. Each person of God functions according to his distinct role. And we won't go into that today. Father has a role, the Son has a role, the Holy Spirit has a role. <clears throat> Each works in concert with the others. Now as I read this, oh, you're beginning to see something about the kind of fellowship that God is looking for among ourselves. Are oh, you beginning to see something here? Each works in concert with the others, interdependently, never independent. There is no such thing as any person of the Godhead acting independently. There is no such thing. It does not exist. 
if we are to be believers who bring forth the revelation and functioning of the glory of God, we must be those who live interdependently and never independently shunning independence as a work of the enemy to destroy the fellowship. Now that's difficult for us Americans because we were birthed by the declaration of what? Independence. Well, in a political system, that's fine, but in this Christianity, it's deadly. Don't bring in the world's ways into the church. Each, all three persons working together in absolute and perfect unity, which I've already said, each enjoying the company of the others. Oh, do we enjoy the company of everyone in the church? Hmm. All sharing in the common life of the one being of God. Listen to how Bruce Ware puts it in his book, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. By the way, if I <clears throat> am going to encourage you to get another book, remember I've asked you to consider a couple of books. Let's study First John in that series. And then the, uh, the delightful, help me to remember the name of it, uh, the delighting in the Trinity. And then this one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Where's old man, uh, Alman? Have you read this book? Very, very quickly. Was it any good? Absolutely. Was it any good? Yes. Would you recommend it to others? Go. He said yes, for those of you who can hear. <clears throat> Here's what Bruce Ware says. The three persons are never in conflict of purpose. Hmm. Never jealous over another's position or specific work. Hmm. Never prideful over one's own position of work. Hmm. And they are always sharing fully the delight in the one being of God and accomplishing the unified purpose of God. Here is a unity of differentiation where love abounds and where neither jealousy nor pride is known. Each divine person accepting his role, each in proper relation to the others, each working together with the others, one unified common purpose. See, this is a fellowship that John seeks to protect and promote in the church. This is the fellowship. I know I took a little time on that, but if I don't pave the way for us, we are not going to see fellowship from God's perspective, and we're going to see it as a thin thing and as an optional thing rather than the necessary functional activity of what the church is to be like in order to correctly and truthfully image God and therefore declare His glory in our congregation or in the community. <clears throat> so let's turn to the passage. In the passage this morning, John begins, as I said, to deal with the issues that either promote or hinder this fellowship. And what he does in verse 5 is this. He begins by not dealing with the issue immediately, those things that either promote or hinder, but he begins where he needs to begin. He begins where all of us should always begin when we're dealing with issues in our lives, issues within the church, issues of positive issues or negative issues, however you want to call that. We always begin with something about God. John underpins what he's going to say with a statement about God. So let's look at verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him. From whom? from Christ, from God, from the Holy Spirit, and which we proclaim to you. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. You remember what Jesus told the disciples? He said, I am the light of the world. But you remember, everybody remembers that, I am the light of the world. But what does he say in Matthew 5, 14? 
What does it say in 514 of Matthew? You are the light of the world. What does it say in verse 16? Therefore, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good or righteous or God works, righteous, good, God works, and glorify your Father who is in heaven. So see, light, God is light. Now, by saying this, the scripture presents light as purity, chastity, holiness. Light has, is a term that has to do with God's absolute and complete knowledge and understanding of himself and of us. God is the only being in all creation who thoroughly knows himself and who thoroughly understands himself. How many of you understand your wife or your husband thoroughly? How many of you understand your wife or husband just a little bit? How many of you know this is a big deal? How many of us understand ourselves? We don't. We just have a speck of understanding. Yet God thoroughly knows and understands himself. He's in complete knowledge. This is light. You see, because there is no darkness of misunderstanding, lack of knowledge, lack of, of uh, whatever in God. He is absolute pure light. So you remember, what is the first commandment in Genesis 1-3? What? Let there be light. That's the first one. Remember in John 1-1, the light shone and overcame the darkness. Remember, the darkness couldn't kind of stop it from coming in. So now John is ready to shine the light. What light? What light? The very person and truth about who God is. We're not talking about a flashlight and there's something here. God doesn't have light. God is light. So he's now ready to take the light of a knowledge and understanding of who God is within himself and apply that light against those things in our lives that both promote and would hinder the work of his fellowship. <clears throat> and he's going to shine it on the darkness and he's going to deal, at least in this section that we're dealing with this morning, at least three areas that hinder our fellowship. And we'll see them in verse 6, 8, and 10. And in fact, each one of these verses, if you can look a little ahead, each one of these verses say, if we say. Do you see how verse 6 starts? If we say. Verse 8. If we say. Verse 10. If we say. Because you see, a lot of us say things which are not the truth. Just because we say it doesn't make it true. And so this is what John is dealing with. If we say. And as we go through that, listen to your own communication within yourself to yourself, within yourself to God, and within yourself outwardly to other people. How many times we say things, but they're not based in truth? And so let's look at this. Number verse 6. Verse 6, I take this as the overview verse of this section. God is light. There's no darkness in him. Verse 6 is going to deal with an issue of what that means, and the rest of the verses through 2.17, I think will explicate or bring forth details of that particular statement. So let's look at verse 6. If we say we have fellowship, how many of us say we have fellowship with God? Come on. All believers should be able to say this. If we say we have fellowship, so he's addressing us <clears throat> with him, while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Now, you see, I like John. 
John just doesn't beat around the bush. He beats the bush down. You know, sometimes people say grace. Grace means saying it in a palpable, sweet way. I agree. Sometimes grace means you just get right there and say you're a liar. I mean, it just depends on what God is doing and what the situation is. It doesn't mean every time someone says something you don't agree with, you tell them a liar. But it does mean that under certain circumstances, you just have to say you're lying. So let's not be afraid of either side of this. Let's be as sweet as we can, if that's what grace wants us to, and let's be as bold and direct as we can as grace desires us to. Amen? Let's not be on one side or the other, <clears throat> which is not grace. And so we say if we, walk in we have fellowship and we walk in the darkness, we're liars. You see, some were teaching that while we're living in these bodies, the real issue is the spiritual. Remember the Gnosticism. The material is anti the spiritual. The material is bad, spiritual is good. So while we're living in these bodies, it really just doesn't matter how we live. Now, I don't think any of us would say that. But what I hear regularly, well, I shouldn't say regularly, I have heard it enough times to be concerned about it, is this. <clears throat> I'm a Christian, and as a Christian, I'm free to do as I want. It doesn't matter because I'm saved. I'm a Christian, and I'm free. I mean, Galatians talks about God has set us, what, free for freedom. For Christ has died so we could be free. So I'm free. I am free to do this. I'm free to go there. I'm free to... And it's, it's, it's a, it's, what word do I want? It's an abomination. It's a lie. We're not free. We're free from the shackles and control of sin, and we're free to be submitting to the will of God. That's where our freedom is. But you see, the exact opposite is true, that the way we live doesn't matter. Our walk in these vile bodies is what causes our fellowship to either reflect or not reflect him who is light. The way we walk individually, corporately. You notice individually slash corporately. The way we walk, the way we live our lives is the way that the fellowship that exists within God is manifested to his glory. So in the next verse, John tells us how we reflect the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ to his image of God. Verse 7, if we walk in the light, now, where is this word light? Where did you just see it in verse what? 5. So if we walk in the light, what does that mean? That means if we walk in who God is and if we are manifesting how he is and who he is, if we're walking in Christ, in the light, as he is in the light, <clears throat> we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. And so in verse 6, if we walk in the light, I'm sorry, if we say we're in the light, we say we're fellowshipping, and we walk in the light, and we're walking in darkness, we're liars. So how is walking in darkness overcome? We have to be walking in the light. And as we walk in the light, the blood of Jesus, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin. The way we walk is the way we image the fellowship of God. In general, John will spend the rest of his letter dealing with our walk 
as he circles this wagon of truth with his instruction in order to be sure that he's covered the subject well. Paul teaches in a linear progression. One, two, three, four, five. John does this. One, two, three, one, four, three, two, one, three, two, two, one, three, two. That's how he teaches. He's teaching in a circular way. So what we'll talk about this morning, we'll see again in verse uh, chapter 3, and we'll see again in chapter 4, and we'll see again in chapter 5. He circles this. And you're going to say, well, wait, didn't we just talk about that three weeks ago? Yes, we did, but John's coming back again. And so while we walk in the light, as we are walking in the light, we are being maintained in Christ by the forgiveness that we have been given by the shedding of the blood of Christ. What maintains us in Christ? Does my walk maintain me in Christ as some teach? That if you walk obediently, you're in Christ. If you don't walk obediently, you're not in Christ anymore. And if you die having just committed sin, you're going to hell because you just walked out of Christ. Well, the Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible simply doesn't teach that. It teaches that once we are brought in by the blood of Christ, the forgiveness of our sin through the shed blood of Jesus at the cross, <clears throat> we are maintained before our God by that same work. God ever sees us within the understanding of the atoning blood of Christ. It is an everlasting covenant. It is an everlasting atonement never to be shed again. This is why it's so wrong if, for those who think the blood is being shed continually. It is a one-time act, never to be repeated, as Hebrew says. And this is the way that we're maintained before a holy God. And our walk is the description or the revelation or the declaration of who we are in Christ. Not to be saved and to be forgiven, but because we are, therefore we can walk in the light. I don't walk in the light in order to be kept in Christ because I am kept in Christ. I walk in the light. Do you see the difference? If you put it wrong, you're going to be continually under a burden, under condemnation. You're going to be worried about, am I going to be saved? Suppose next week I fall under the sin which I committed three years ago, and, and something happens, will I go to heaven? Uh, you know, and then, of course, people ask me, well, suppose I commit suicide, and then, you know, let's not deal with those things. Let's deal with this. I am a believer. I have been forgiven, and I will walk in the light. Amen? Let that be your consideration rather than what a bit of what a bit of forget all that foolishness and say, I'm gonna concentrate on one thing. I'm a believer and I'm walking in the light. How many of you are gonna continue with me to walk in the light? How many? All of us will. Yes, because we're going to the end. Why? Because God will take us to the end. Why? Because I'm going to the end. Because God's gonna take me to the end. Because I'm going to the end. <clears throat> Now, in chapter 8, uh, 1, verses 8 to 2.2, John begins to tell us that if we do not deal with our sin truthfully, we're going to be walking in darkness. We're going to begin to allow our sin to cover over this lantern. Remember what Jesus said? If you put, what, a light in a lantern, what do you do? You set it on a hill. You don't put it under a, a bushel. And so under a bushel is we, we begin to cover over the light by our sin. 
How many of us have had to clean windows in our house because the dirt gets on them? And as the dirt gets on them, it begins to disallow as much of the light to come in. This is what he's talking about. So let's keep the windows of our souls crystal clear by looking at these two verses. So verses 10, I'm sorry, 8 and 10 are put together. I know that 9 is there, but we'll deal with 9 after we talk about these two. <clears throat> if we say we have no sin, how many of us say we have no sin? Well, we do say it, but differently than what you think. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Verse 10. If we say we have not sinned, we make God a liar. Keep a hold of that verse. And his word is not in us. Now, these are strong terms that John is using. He doesn't pull any punches. You see, the problem is not that we have sinned. That's not the problem. I, I need to tell you something that maybe you're not aware of. So hold on to your belts and maybe make sure you take this down. Every one of them, may I repeat that word? What did I say, Mama? Every one of us will continue to sin at some level until we get a new body. Can you say amen? Is there anything we can do to literally cease from all sin? No. So the issue isn't sin. How many of you think that God knew that even after we were saved, we continue to sin? How many of you think God knew that? That even after we were saved, you continue to sin? Does God know that? <clears throat> but he did what? He saved us anyway. And he's cleansed us in the forgiveness of Christ from all of these sins. So the issue is not sin in and of itself. It's what we do in relation to sin. It's how we handle sin. It's how we grapple with it. It's how we overcome it. It's how we wrestle against it. That's the issue more than anything else. You see, what happens is this. The problem is not that we have sinned, but how we respond to our sin. So, remember verse, says, verse 8, if we have no sin. Some deny, I didn't do that, I didn't say that. Some deflect, oh, it was, it was, oh, well, I'm not the only one. Remember Adam and Eve? God came to Adam, you sinned. Oh, the woman. God said the woman, you sinned. Oh, the snake. God says, a snake, you sin. Nobody else to point to. I suppose a buck stops there. You know? When we're convicted of sin by the Holy Spirit, now, how many of you are okay by being convicted of sin by the Holy Spirit? Well, raise your hand. Every one of you who are okay by being convicted of sin. Keep your hand raised a second. I have a hook for you. No, keep your hand a little bit. You're okay with being convicted by, uh, by the Holy Spirit of sin. How many of you are okay when the Holy Spirit uses that obnoxious person to tell you that? <laughs> oh, come on. Come on. Come on. Let's be honest. How many of you are okay when that obnoxious, ding-a-ling, loud mouth, no good, in my face, even unrepentant, unchristian, you know, unbelieving person tells me something about my sin and the Holy Spirit has just used that jackass as he did with Balaam. I just put the word jack in front of it because we're in polite company. Don't we think that way? 
Come on, how many of us have ever had difficulty receiving a word of God from an obnoxious or whatever person? Raise your hand. How many of us? Yes. Yes. How many husbands in here have difficulty receiving a word of correction from your wives? Am I the only one? Come on, raise your hand. No, look, look, look at Victor. You ought to be on top of the table. The only problem is the table would break. <laughs> and I should be up there with you. We're doing a dance together. <laughs> and cause no telling what Claude should be doing. The only man who gets his nose in everybody's business. But anyway, let's continue. Do you see this? Oh, I have no sin. Oh, what? We don't say that. I have not sinned. We, we, we do it regularly, either verbally or with our attitude. Very dangerous. In verse 9, John tells us the response that maintains our fellowship. When you're convicted of sin, even under adverse circumstances from a ding-a-ling, here's what we do. If we confess our sin, if we agree with God that what we have done is sin without any equivocation or explanation, Father, you're right, I'm a sinner. I have, sorry, I have sinned against you in this issue. <clears throat> if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He keeps us in a functional, forgiving relationship. That does not believe that if you don't confess, you're not forgiven. It means that the forgiveness that we already have and will always have in Christ is maintained in a functional, mature, and healthy way. That keeps the devil out of our kitchen. You're not confessing to be forgiven. So many people say, you know, you need to ask God for forgiveness so you can be forgiven of that. Well, if that's the case, we're in and out of Christ all the time. We're in Christ, forgiven. It is a talking of the maintenance and the continuing and the keeping of the windows of our soul clean. So when the dirt of sin hits the window, don't be afraid, don't clamor, don't say, oh, woe is me. Get outside and clean the window. Because you've not been kicked out of the house because the window is dirty. And if the window should break and the sin comes inside and is on the floor and is beginning to permeate the house, what do you do? Father, I have sinned. And you and I and you by the Holy Spirit are going to get in here and we're going to clean the floor. We're going to wipe the walls. We're going to deal with the work. We're going to repair the window and we're moving on. But I'm not being kicked out of the Father's house. Are you with me on this? Don't be confused here. John 2, 1 and 2. John reminds us of two fundamental truths about God that gives us the confidence in confessing when we think that we've gone too far. How many of you have ever sinned thinking, this time I've crossed the line? How many of you ever thought that? This time I've crossed the line. I've crossed the line. May I say this? In Christ there is no line. Oh, well, Peter, are you saying that we can do what we want to do? No way. You should know better than that. Shame on you if you think that. So what do we do if we think we've crossed the line? Well, John tells you. He says this in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 2. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. 
if you do sin. You see? Don't sin. But if you do, he doesn't say when you do, he says if you do. He says we have now and forever. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he is what? The propitiation of our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. He said there are two reasons here. One reason to look at it from two different perspectives. Why we can have confidence in confession. Why could the boy in Luke 15 come to his senses in verse 17 and say, I will arise and return to my father? Because he knew that the man on the hill was a man like God. He confessed because he has been forgiven and he's an accepted son. He doesn't repent to be forgiven, but because he is a forgiven man, therefore he can repent. He doesn't repent to be forgiven, but because he is a forgiven man standing before Father as a son, he can now repent with confidence. See, all these kinds of issues do hurt our fellowship with God and with one another. Do you see how this is? Why can we have confidence? Well, I've just listed three reasons. Romans 5, 6, Jesus died for us. Romans 8, 1, we're under no condemnation. And Hebrews 7, 15, I'm sorry, 7, 25, we have a representative who stands before God, Christ, ever representing us. And he is our security to the end. Let me just say this. Here's my security, and this is your security. We are in Christ. Do you get that? As long as the Son of God stands before the throne of God as a man, as a risen man, as long as the Son of God remains before the presence of God in heaven as a man, we are maintained. <clears throat> the moment Jesus divests himself of his manhood, we are gone. So what is my security? That there is a man in the throne of God who rules and reigns forever. And I am where? In him. Someone should have yelled and screamed, but nothing. You can yell and scream occasionally because there's good news to yell about. Don't go yell and scream when the saints win today and not having done it here. First yell here, get yourself ready to yell there. This is a place for yelling. I know people don't like to be told that, but I'm just encouraging you, let's be excited about what God has done. There is a man in the presence of God, and we are maintained in him forever. Amen. Amen. That's great news. That's security. That allows me to say, Father, I've sinned again. And to receive the healing balm of his forgiveness for the overcoming of the next temptation, for the growth in my walk with Christ. So my fellowship in Christ is maintained. Whew. The clock is an evil thing, isn't it? <clears throat> John 3, 11, uh, verses 3.11 in chapter 2. John now turns his attention to the activity and the substance of our walk. Oh, this is huge. 
almost, and I, I knocked out a couple of pages already out of my nose. The content of our walk. Listen to the content. What should this walk look like, this fellowship? What is the content? And by this we know that we have come to know him, or to have fellowship with him. How, this is how we do it, if we keep his commandments. See, this is the first of those three comments about our security, how we can know we're saved. How do you know you're saved? One of the three ways that John gives us is this first. If we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. He's walking with darkness. So we keep his commandments. But let's look at verse 5. But whoever, and what is the substance of a walk? The activity is obedience. What is the substance of that obedience? What is the motive and the issue that makes that obedience real obedience? How do I know that when I'm obeying God, I'm really obeying him? Does that make sense to you? But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may be sure that we are in him. <clears throat> whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the very same way in which Jesus walked. You see, obedience of love, we are obeying because we are loved and we are obeying because we love. Amen? If there's any other motive, it's faulty. We are obeying because we are the objects of God's everlasting love. And we obey because we are loving him back with the very same love that he has within himself. I'm not loving him with a Peter Davidson love on that. I'm loving him with a divine love that exists in God that he has given to me and to each one of us and is developing in me and each one of us by the Spirit. So our love for God is the love that he has set within our hearts when we were saved to be reciprocity to his love. It is an ever-enfolding involvement within the very life and fellowship of the Godhead himself. Do you see this? It's not that I'm loving God and I'm going to try to love God. I can't do it even as a believer. I can't do it. And I don't even try to do it anymore. It's just voodoo legalism. I have to say, Father, cause the love of who you are within yourself to be manifested in me more strongly and clearly and functionally and pervasively day by day, <clears throat> and then move me by your spirit to be involved in that and in that capacity that you've given me to respond to that, in that love, may I return it to you. May I return the love that the Father has for the Son, the Son has for the Father, back to the God that he's given us. Do you see this? This is the love of God. This is the way we're sure we're in him because only a believer can do this. Why? Why is this important? Because Jesus walked it. This is what Jesus did. If we are truly imaging the fellowship within God, we are experiencing the very same fellowship of love that exists within God. And this is not a new commandment. You remember Jesus said, love one another as I have loved you. But what does the love look like? Verses 9 to 11. What does it look like in the church? Here is how it is practically done. Now, here is what we're not going to like. How do I know that I'm loving God 
within the context of the love which God has within himself among the three persons. Well, that should say something. This is one person loving another, another person loving another, one sharing, one caring, one ministering, one leading, one following. One. Do you see that within God? Well, how is that to be walked out? It's to be worked out and walked out in us as we look into the verse. Loving one another. Here's the rub. I can love God, but there are some people in this church or my family that I'll be damned if I'm going to love them. And you don't want to be damned, so stop saying that. <clears throat> don't we feel like that? Anybody have an attitude sometimes like that about anybody in the church? Oh, I'm the only one who's ever had that. Okay, great. This is wonderful. <laughs> Whoever says he is in the light, remember the light, and hates his brother. The word hate here doesn't mean hatred in and of itself. It means just not loving him with God's love. If we don't love others with the same kind of love that lo God loves us, it is in God's sight as if it is hate. There's no gradation here. It is either God's self-love and the love that we are experiencing giving back. Or it's hate. There's no middle ground here. He is not looking for me to try to churn up some love of my own for him and for one another. If we hate, we say we're in the light, hate our brother, we're still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause of stumbling. But whoever hates his brother, in other words, does not love him with the same love with which he is loved is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he's going because the darkness is blind in his eyes. You see, this is the love. The fellowship that exists within God is to be seen in the church. How? Individually, corporately, as we love those whom God loves in the very same way that he loves them. Is this a challenge for anybody? It should be. <clears throat> what about loving the world? John talks about not loving the world in the next section, 10 to 17. Now, may I say this? The problem with human beings is not the lack of love. That's never the problem with people. The problem with human beings is the object of love. Every human being, if he's in his right mind, is passionately loving. The object of the unsaved is self. And the object of the saved is God and becoming more and more God through the process of transformation. So don't say ever, oh, they lack love. They don't lack love. They just love the wrong person. Are you with me? You know how we speak. We kind of get funny with our terminology. None of us lack love. We never have. We've all loved the wrong object. We've loved me. What is the middle, uh, what is the middle uh, letter in sin? I. I. That's the problem with sin. So John now is ready to talk about the love and that potential hindrance that we love the world. He first reminds us that the work of grace has changed the relationship to the world, and that's when he talks in this section between 12 and 14. That relationship of love has changed them in relation to the world. So I'm not going to go into detail in that section. And then he says in 15, 16, do not love the world nor the things of the world, so if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. We're talking about that affection and affiliation and desiring of and fellowshipping and going for and wanting and clamoring for and taking unto ourselves the way the world is, which is permeating the church to its great detriment and weakness. One of the major things I hope we all do is, Father, 
would you show me how much, not if, how much, not if, how much am I being polluted by loving the world? Don't come up and say, I don't love the world. You liar. The problem is we do, and we don't want to be loving it as much, and we, own, we want to be being flush from this. So let me try to move along. John is warning us that if we transfer to the world our love or even a part of it, our love for God and our fellowship with God, either a, even a part of it, we're not fellowshipping with the world, with God. We are participating and practicing idolatry. And this is one of Satan's favorite tricks. Remember in 2 Timothy, Demas, Paul says, in love of this present world has deserted me. And so you'll see in these verses, which I won't go into, there are three things that John describes. You'll see the same three things in Genesis 3-6. So if you look at those, that Genesis 3-6 and John 2-15-16, you'll see those same three things. I'll call it the lust of, and then you figure it out. And Eve saw that it was good for the lust of, good for. You see, we need to remember that not only is our fellowship with God at risk, but the world is passing away in verse 17. We're loving a dying animal. We're snuggling up to a corpse. We're eating rotting food. We're digging in the garbage can and in the toilet of life looking for nourishment and meaning and approbation and thrill and contentment and goals. Friends, we're in Christ. Please let us be a people who allow the Holy Spirit's light to shine upon us in these areas so that we can be people of more permeating light. You see the outline for the next several weeks is where we're going. Amen? See you next week. Thank you so much.